to ask that you please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And as you're turning there, just uh, by way of introduction, I think that uh, exile is not a word, uh, I would suspect at least, that you don't commonly use when you think of yourself. Yet, until we are with Christ in glory, to live as a Christian means to live as an exile. We are Christians because God in His mercy decided to claim us as His own. Apart from God's grace, we were uh, citizens of the world uh, in opposition to God, and yet He took us, He took hold of us, and by the death and resurrection of Christ, He has made us citizens of His kingdom. But though, as Christians, we are uh, now made citizens of heaven, our passport has been changed, so to speak, our address remains the same. When we become Christians, God uh, does not take us out of the world, but he leaves us where we are to live and work and have relationships right where we are in the world. So as Christians, we are people who are not of this world, as Jesus said, and yet we live in the world as strangers and exiles. But the point is that we are exiles. This scripture makes clear in a number of places. And it's our status as exiles that makes the book of Daniel of particular benefit to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. For Daniel was a book written about life in exile. The book of Daniel records the life and ministry of the Jewish prophet Daniel as he lived in Babylon some 2,600 years ago. Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is. And as a young Jewish man, Daniel didn't choose to live in Babylon. Daniel was in Babylon because, as we'll read momentarily, he was taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar uh, came to Jerusalem, raided the city, and took some of the brightest and best young people that Jerusalem had to offer, Daniel included. So from the time that Daniel was a young man, uh, likely uh, when he was about uh, 15 or 16 perhaps, uh, from that time he lived about 900 miles away from home and he worked as a servant to foreign kings. Daniel's entire career as a prophet, as a spokesperson of God, spanning some 68 plus years, all were spent ministering in exile. Therefore, it's not surprising that the themes that we read about in the book of Daniel are those that are meant to comfort a people who live in a world not their own. Daniel's a book for exiles, and since this is precisely the condition that we as Christians find ourselves in, we are strangers and exiles on the earth. As Hebrews says, Daniel is also a book for us. So we turn to Daniel chapter 1, and there we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, 
endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and uh, competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has signed your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the, end of the, at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, which is living and active and true, profitable for building us up, encouraging us and comforting us, we ask for your help. Lord, I pray that you would help me to uh, deliver your word faithfully, and I pray that you would help us to uh, find the great encouragement of knowing that you are the God who preserves and guides your people, even while we are uh, living in a world that is hostile to your truth. Help us, we pray now, in Jesus' name, amen. So how can you live faithfully, and by this I mean how can you live a life that honors uh, God in a hostile world? That, I believe, is the question that Daniel 1 helps us to answer. How can you and I live God-honoring, faithful lives while on every side we seem confronted with people and advertising and websites and books and articles and TV programs that think living a God-honoring, faithful life, life is a fool's errand? It's a question that the people who first read the book of Daniel were certainly asking. 
So the challenges and hostility that they face would have been different than uh, those that we endure here in West Michigan. They were living in a world uh, that wanted to see them forsake their God. And so our passage this evening was given to God's people both then and now as we live in that sort of world, in a world that would like to see us abandon and forsake our God. It's a passage that teaches us that God enables his people to live faithful lives as exiles or aliens in a hostile world. And it teaches us this uh, by pointing to the fact or or telling us that we must recognize that God is in control, by uh, telling us that we must resolve to rely upon God, and by telling us to rest in God's power to preserve his people. So the first thing that is necessary for us as we seek to live faithful lives in the world, as we are in exile, is the recognition that God is in control. Now this would not have been the conviction of many of the Jews on the day that King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem. As his armies overcame the city's defenses and as he pushed and pillaged and plundered his way through the city streets, that's not what the people were thinking. And as Nebuchadnezzar marched victoriously through those streets, holding up uh, the, the vessels from the temple of the Lord, the gold and silver instruments that were used in worship, it would have appeared to some that God was not in control, but that he was incapacitated. How could God allow the objects that were to be used in his worship to be trotted off and, and taken to collect dust somewhere as trophies of war in the temple of a foreign idol? If God would not rouse himself in this moment, if he would not dare to defend his temple, then what was he doing? To make matters worse, Nebuchadnezzar not only raided the temple of God, but he also uh, invaded or plundered the elite private academies of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had his chief eunuch, that's the man who uh, was likely in charge of his palace, to take the best and brightest young men of Jerusalem uh, for the service of his palace in Babylon. So with these young men dragged off from their homes, Jerusalem deprived of their best and brightest and most promising sons, Jerusalem was left to look up at the heavens as they were eerily still. Yet this siege of Jerusalem, the plundering of the temple, and the deportation of Jerusalem's most promising young people was no accident, Daniel says. None of these horrible events happened because God was idle or absent or indifferent. Rather, all these things were the working out of God's sovereign purposes. The exile was not an example of God's powerlessness, but of his powerfulness, which is what verse 2 informs us. For it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, as I assume many of you are, you'll know that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands of Babylon as judgment uh, for sin. Against God's clear command, his people had decided to uh, worship other imitation gods alongside of him. They had chosen to split their affection. Not only uh, would they worship God, but they would come to uh, worship a bunch of counterfeits. Though, they, uh, though God had warned his people not to, to do this, how he had sent prophets to warn them not to split their affections, that such idolatry would not go unpunished, they would not change their ways. And so God, true to his word, set it in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, 
king of Babylon, to besiege Jerusalem and take captive the people of Judah. But this simple phrase in verse 2, that the Lord gave Jehoiakim up, is very important because it means that the events that will follow in the book of Daniel, the events that that take place even in chapter 1 with these four young Jewish men, were not an accident, but it was all according to God's wise design. And it's this conviction that God is sovereign that is a necessary conviction for faithful living in the world, for faithful living in exile. For God's people to live faithfully in exile, they must be convinced, absolutely convinced, that God remains in control of things. It means that God's people, as they live in the world, recognize that they are where they are because God has seen fit to place them there. Verse 2 and what follows tell us that God had placed Daniel and his companions in Babylon on purpose. Their status as exiles, a faithful few in a pagan culture, was by God's design. It's important uh, for for us to recognize this, uh, this fact, that it's just as true for us today as it was for Daniel and his friends. As exiles and strangers in the world, if we as Christians are to live faithful, God-honoring lives uh, in a world that is hostile to God's truth, we must be thoroughly convinced of this fact, that we are where we are because God, the Lord of history, has placed us there. So you are in exile by God's appointment. Whatever challenge uh, comes with wherever God has placed you in the world, is by, uh, that's by His appointment also. So perhaps uh, the, the school that you go to or the, the job that you work or the, the family that you are, are placed in exert pressures that make it quite difficult for you to live obediently to the Lord. Every attempt at obedience on your part is checked by questions and objections on theirs. But the question is, isn't it true that God has placed you there? You see, when when exiles realize that they have been uh, purposefully placed where they have by God on purpose, uh, they will not be angry or or bitter or or grumpy because uh, the world around them makes it difficult to live faithfully. You see, when we recognize that God in His sovereignty has placed us where He has, we, we may grieve that more people do not worship God. We may grieve when God is mocked. We may, uh, we, we may do all those things, but we don't need to be upset when we face opposition because we realize God has placed us here for a reason. The Lord's power, His purposes, extend even to Babylon. That's the, the point Daniel is making for those who are, are, are reading this uh, book for the first time, that Daniel and his companions can be uh, confident that the God who has, has uh, placed them there, he will be with them to provide for them what they need so they can live faithfully even where he has placed them. Secondly, faithful exile living also requires a resolve. Daniel and his uh, three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were no older than 16 or 17 years old when they were taken into captivity. And they were taken as I have said, to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. So here's Daniel and his friends. They have been taken to this foreign land to serve in the palace, and Nebuchadnezzar goes about reprogramming and repackaging uh, these young men according to Babylonian standards. 
Nebuchadnezzar's aim was to have these Jewish exiles assimilated into Babylonian culture. He would have them learn the language. He would have them learn the literature. He would have them learn the lessons of Babylon. He would spare no expense in doing this. He would give them a full ride to the king's university. They were enrolled in the best meal plan that the university had to offer. All their expenses were paid. And yet this generosity, this warm-heartedness on the part of, uh, of uh, or I should say, this was not generosity or warm-heartedness on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Someone uh, recently shared with me a story, and, and I have not been able to, to verify this, uh, of, of a woman who kept a, a seven-foot-long python for a pet. And the story goes uh, that one day the python suddenly stopped eating. And the woman was distressed and took her python to the vet. And the vet asked her whether her uh, snake had been sleeping with her or snuggling with her at all. And she replied uh, to the vet, yes, in fact, uh, that he had. And she felt miserable that her snake was so sick. To which the vet replied to her, he said, Lady, your snake isn't sick. He's been preparing to eat you. He's only snuggled up to you to size you up to see whether he's got enough room to digest you. And in the same way, King Nebuchadnezzar's seemingly generous offers of a royal education and delicious food was not affection, but he was preparing to swallow these young men in a manner of speaking. Nebuchadnezzar would have them forsake their old identities as children of the Lord, as citizens of Israel, and have them take up a new identity, children of Babylon, servants of Nebuchadnezzar. So we should pay close attention to what Daniel 1 is telling us about this, the details of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian assimilation plan, since God here is giving us a scouting report on the ways of the world. Nebuchadnezzar's plan to repro, reprogram Daniel and his friends, uh, it's, a, it's, a playbook, uh, it's a play right out of the playbook of, of the world. So we, we need to learn these things so we can be on guard uh, so that we will not be tripped up by them. So notice what, how Nebuchadnezzar goes about trying to assimilate uh, Daniel and his friends into Babylon. First, these young men were removed from their homes, their families, and their worshiping communities. They were separated or isolated. They were removed from their people and they were taken into the king's palace. There would be no reminders from mom or dad about the Bible lessons they had discussed around the table. They would not be held accountable by anyone, whether they were worshiping God or not. They were here alone, alone and surrounded by a pagan culture, with Babylonians who did not give two hoots about whether they worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So notice then that the world loves to separate God's people. The world loves to get God's people out on their own, to have you drift in and out of church without pursuing any sort of meaningful relationships with other Christians. That, that, that's something right out of the world's playbook. The next step we see in Nebuchadnezzar's plan after he has successfully extracted them from their homes was to give them something to read, to get them in the classroom. There they would be taught the literature and language of their Babylonian captors. Oh, here they might have said, take this excellent book on how our god Marduk created uh, the world out of the corpse of another god. Daniel and his friends would read and master this material that was presented to them, and they would do so without complaint. They would do so without losing their faith. 
But notice that when Babylon wishes to reprogram these young men, they seek to enter through the mind. Babylon wants to retrain how how, uh, the people of God think and give them different categories. Categories without reference to God, without thinking without God at the center of things. Again, we can recognize that education is a very good thing. And reading books by people who are not Christians is a valuable exercise at times. But we must be critical and discerning students. We must ask questions like, uh, what worldview is this book arguing for? What does it celebrate? Or what, what does this book say about the ultimate reality? And then we have to compare these things against the scriptures. But we must recognize that the world will seek to reprogram us through our minds. Third portion of the Babylonian assimilation project was the assigning of new names. Now, perhaps you're thinking, if I was a young lad and my name was Hananiah, I'd put up for a new uh, name change too. But these young men had names that meant something. Their names were daily reminders of the God of Israel. Daniel's name, for example, meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant the Lord is gracious. And the other uh, gentlemen had names as well that pointed to the fact that the Lord is their helper. These names would not do in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. These names were to be replaced by thoroughly Babylonian names that paid tribute to their gods, Marduk and Bel and Nebo. So, for example, Daniel is is given the name Belteshazzar, meaning uh, uh, that Bel, a Babylonian god, uh, protects the king. So Nebuchadnezzar and the powers of Babylon attempted to give new identities to these young men. They sought to remove any reference to or, or, or remembrance of who their God was or who their identity was as the people of God. So again, notice how the world wishes to make the people of God forgetful about who they are. The world will try and crowd out or, or replace anything that stirs up in your mind uh, uh, things, the things of God. So it'll seek to to push out uh, devotions and and time in the Word. It'll seek to occupy your minds with other things and make you forget who you are. Finally, in the part of the program that occupies most of Daniel's attention in chapter 1 is that, that Nebuchadnezzar seeks to entice these young people with the delicacies of the king's table. They were to be indulged. No doubt the king's table would have had a certain appeal to these young men. Uh, As they were in training, they were to be assigned the best food in the world. And even though these guys would have come from noble backgrounds in Jerusalem, uh, probably after a siege and after a long trek to Babylon, uh, good food might have been scarce. So now to come to the king's table and have a free offer to eat of the best food and the finest wines, the best cuts of meat, could see how that might have some appeal. But Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to capture the appetites of these young men. He wanted them to fall in love with the bounty of his table and to have these young men come to depend upon him for the good life and for the pleasurable life. The fundamental goal of the whole procedure, writes Ian Duguid, one commentator, uh, was in one way or another to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and minds of these young men and to instill into them a, a sense of total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. So no, notice uh, 
what the world is trying to do, push out uh, any remembrance of God and, and trying to bring complete dependence uh, upon it for what brings joy and life and happiness. Now, despite the wily ways of Nebuchadnezzar and his attempts to subvert the faith of Daniel and his friends, notice that Daniel does not uh, flee. They don't seek to retreat their, uh, from their situation, though perhaps uh, they had little choice in the matter. It's understandable that they may have desired to go somewhere safer, and yet they don't withdraw, but they engage. They, they, they remain in the king's uh, training program. They seek to uh, respectfully serve under their pagan employer. They hit the books hard. In spite of the fact that the, the world around them would seek to undo their devotion to the Lord, they would not retreat. But Daniel, though he engaged, was discerning in his engagement. Notice verse 8. But Daniel resolved, literally, he placed it on his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It's interesting that, that Daniel appears to have accepted uh, the new name given to him. He, he uh, goes on to the classes that are assigned to him, uh, all parts of this assimilation project in Babylon, and yet the one thing he determines not to do is eat of the king's table or drink of the king's wine. Why not? Commentators have discussed various, various options here of what's going on, but I think the most likely reason is that Daniel chooses to abstain from uh, the food and the wine uh, uh, because he would not allow Nebuchadnezzar to take credit for his health or well-being. That's why he eats vegetables and water. There, it, there's going to be no opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to, to take credit when these young men grow up strong. Daniel is resolved to distinctly rely on upon God. And that's on our part. As we look at Daniel, Daniel is an example of what faithful exile living looks like here. It's a determination to lean upon God in a distinctive manner, to trust and rely upon the Lord in a way that says we will not count on the things of the world for our ultimate happiness or ultimate good. So Daniel, and we can state this briefly, he goes to the palace master, he politely requests that he not eat from the king's table. This was a dangerous request, but the Lord uh, gives uh, his blessing to Daniel so he does not get into trouble with the palace master. And, and even though the palace master denies Daniel his request, Daniel can go down the line uh, and, and uh, he finally gets his request granted and the Lord blesses his effort to lean and re rely upon the Lord his God. The Lord blesses them, so after a 10-day trial, they appear to be the healthiest of the lot. But we see Daniel's resolve to rely upon the Lord is pleasing to God, and, and he blesses it, this, this distinctive approach to rest in the Lord and not in what the world had to offer. But living faithfully in exile in the world requires us to be convinced that God is still in control and to be distinct in our reliance upon God, but... One more thing has to be said. If we're uh, to live faithfully as exiles in the world, uh, we must uh, rest in the fact that God protects and provides for us. Daniel's resolve was important, but it was not enough. Our passage tells us that Daniel was, was able to live faithfully in the world of Babylon, not by sheer force of his will, not by his own power, but by God's. It was God at work behind the scenes that uh, prepared and protected Daniel so that he could remain faithful to his God in a world of unfaithfulness. 
It was God who caused Daniel to be favored in the sight of the master of the palace. It was God, verse 17 tells us, who gave these young men learning and skills so that uh, these Jewish lads came to know even better than the the men in, in Babylon's courts the stories and wisdom of Babylon. It was by God's provision that they graduated top of their class. It was God who enabled these, these young men on a diet of vegetables and water to have greater strength than all the others in their class. It was God who was providing for these young men so that they could live faithful lives where he had placed them. And the unseen hand of God is also at work to preserve Daniel. Not only to provide for the things he needs in exile, but to preserve him. Notice the last verse of chapter 1. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Faithful Daniel outlasted King Nebuchadnezzar. He outlasted the king who followed him. And he outlasted the king who followed that king. Daniel, in fact, lived long enough uh, to see the Babylonian Empire fall and give way to King Cyrus of the Persians. So in other words, uh, Daniel is telling us here in this book, it's making a a powerful point that the empire that wanted to see Daniel's faith give way was undone, even as faithful Daniel looked on. Powerful kings come and go, said one commentator, but Daniel, because of his God, outlasts Babylon. So in the life of Daniel, we see God's power to preserve us is greater than the hostile world's ability to corrupt or destroy us. So take comfort in this, Christian, that the wisdom and power of God for you is greater than the wisdom and power of the world against you. As a result, our faithfulness is not determined by the the power of the culture that we are in, but it is determined by the power of the God that we are under. God's power is sufficient to preserve his people while they are in the world. This was the same reassurance that uh, was spoken 600 years later when the Apostle Peter was writing his letter to a group of exiles. He tells them, as they are situated in their own hostile climate, the same thing that Daniel was communicating here in this letter. God's power is sufficient to preserve his people in the world. In fact, Peter was was making his point with an even better evidence of God's faithfulness to keep his people. He could point to the blood of Christ shed for them, and he could say that because Christ bought you, he will keep you. As they lived in the world, Peter could reassure blood-bought exiles that God's power, just as in Daniel's day, was guarding his own people through faith unto salvation. And this reassurance that, that God's power to keep us is greater than the world's power to undo us is for us today too. As we live in a world, even in West Michigan, that would uh, uh, not have us live faithfully unto God, we can rest in the fact that despite the opposition of the world, God will keep us. And this is, this is really in, encouraging news to us. I mean, think of how much money is spent on, on advertising and entertainment uh, that has no reference to God, has no desire to, to see you serve Him or love Him more, Think of, of, of the, the thousands of signs and, and advertisements you see every week that encourage you to worship the idols of materialism and sex and pleasure and self. Think of, think of the, the, the educators and politicians that would uh, have us turn aside from the Lord our God. Think of all these things. And, and I think about that. So how on earth could we stand up when on our own we do not have the resources to match that? 
How do we not just be overwhelmed and completely undone? Well, it's because Daniel 1 is true. The encouragement here is for us. That God's power to keep his people, even in a world that would love to see our faith undone, is stronger than the world. God's wisdom and power will keep his people. He will guide and protect his people uh, in the world. The the advertising agencies on on Madison Avenue will give way. The the, uh, entertainment industry in Hollywood would give away. But but the message of Daniel chapter 1 is that God's people, by his preserving power, will outlast them all. It's good news to think that when we are in the university classroom or when we are at work uh, and there are all these pressures that are, are, are pushing up against us, conspiring to turn us away from the Lord, that he is at work in his people. Not a single one will fall away, but they will last, he will preserve, he will keep them even to the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that um, your enemies and our enemies, uh, Satan, the world, and our flesh would like nothing more than to undo us and draw us away from you. Lord, at times it can seem overwhelming. We are, are, are living in a world where so many factors conspire against faithful living. The exile living is hard. Being uh, uh, not yet in glory with you is hard. And yet we thank you for this truth, Lord, that you are at work keeping your people, preserving them and guiding them, even as they await the day, uh, even as we await the day when we will one day be with you forever. So thank you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.